The gospel lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. And to remind you, this is on the first day Jesus rose from the dead. He's appeared to some people near his tomb. And now we pick up the story. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of our Lord. So we're here on the road to Emmaus, and I want to talk about something that is, I think, universal for all of us. And as we explore this story, I want to think about the story as kind of a process, a kind of journey or pilgrimage. And this is one that, at least in, in, ter- in religious terms or spiritual terms, uh, it's what Christians talk about from baptism or conversion all the way to the end of their life into the new heavens and new earth. There's a journey and a pilgrimage. But also in microcosm, this journey and this pilgrimage is something that can happen day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. And I hope to explain what I mean by that as we just kind of walk through this for the next little while together. It starts with something like this, where you find yourself busy, you're, doing, you're going through your motions, but 
you forgot something or you're looking for something uh, and you can't, you can't quite place it. You're not sure where it is. Maybe you've uh, lost your keys, you know? And then when you finally find them, you're like, I don't understand. You know, if that was a snake, it would have bit me. It's right there in front of me. Uh, sometimes you can walk around and, and just be going through the motions and not notice something that's been there forever. This happens a lot in New York. You look up. I mean, I did this just the other day, like two blocks from my house. I've been in the same area for, I don't know, 15 years or something. I look up and I'm like, I've never seen that because I've never looked up here before. Uh, something that's happening like that for me a lot right now is my wife and I are trying to, for the first time in a long time, pay any attention to our little backyard and make it a little bit of a garden. So for the first time, I'm learning plants and their names. I got this new app, and I, you don't want to go on a walk with me right now because I just stop everywhere I go, and I learn all these new things. They've been there forever and ever. Uh, they're always around season after season, and I pay them no mind. They're just the background to my agenda, you know? They're there. And now I'm learning their names. There's like Japanese maple, and there's dogwood, and there's hosta, if that's how you say it. And there's all these cute little plants with interesting names, and I'm paying attention to them. And it's like I'm seeing them for the first time. For the first time, I'm actually seeing these flowers and these plants that have been around me season after season, and they're everywhere, and I'm finally noticing them. And maybe this has happened to you in life. Maybe there was a time... Uh, that something suddenly became significant to you, something that had been around, but you'd ignored it for a long time. Maybe you remember someday you'd been around a friend for a long time, and one day they looked a little different to you, and you thought, huh, why didn't I notice that person before? The beginning of something like love. How is it that we miss the things that are right there before our eyes? And I think this is where it's illustrative that this experience of the resurrection happens on the road. These disciples are busy, they're walking, they're talking, they're chattering, and Jesus shows up, as we'll see in a minute, and they don't even recognize him. He's not right there. And so that question could be true for us. As you're walking around, like, where is God in your daily experience? If you did want to stop and pay attention to him, smell the roses, as it were, how would you find him? Where is he? Is he with us? Is he around? And so here these disciples are on the road, literally, and also mentally. They're moving really quickly. They're chattering little chatterboxes. They're making so many plans. They're trying to figure out what happened and understand it and make mental sense of it. And so they're debating and they're talking. And I think it speaks very much to our situation that our lives, like these disciples, day by day are full of hope and disappointment. Busily, we're running around most of the time trying to make sense of it all, sometimes a bit aimless, but at our best and deepest, we have this longing that resides there, this search, this hope that there might be something more. And perhaps the name for this something more is God. If so, how do we get his instruction and his presence to help our lives make sense, to give our lives significance and coherence, to know that we're part of a greater story that matters to us and to others? And so these disciples are walking. I won't read the whole passage again, but just to remind you, they're walking to a village. They've left Jerusalem. They're walking home, and they're talking about everything that just happened. And we learn from the rest of the story that they were there in the room when people said, we have seen that Jesus is risen from the dead. And then they listen. But this report comes at first from the women. And face it, you couldn't even let a woman have testimony in the court of law at the time. So they're not listening to this. And then a couple other disciples run and say, it's true, he's gone, but we didn't find him. And so it seems 
exceedingly bizarre that they just go, you know what, I think it's time to go home. Nothing seems to be happening here. It's been three days. Nobody's found anything. We got chores back at home. We got things to tend to. And they're going home, but they're very disappointed. They're kind of up in turmoil about this decision. They're walking, talking about everything. And man, they're going home again, on the road, giving up. Again, debating and racking their brains, trying to find out what happened. And here's where it gets interesting. The resurrected Jesus catches up with them on the road and kind of maybe comes in on a side path and, hey, howdy, partners, and he's walking with them. He was suddenly a a Western American. Um, He's walking down the road with them, and they don't notice. They don't notice at all. They're still just talking. He's listening to them talk and chatter about. It seems like they go a long way and a long while, and he's paying attention and listening to them. They're upset that Jesus' voice has been silenced by death and evil powers, They're upset that God has not spoken to them yet or explained why that had happened. True, there's some stories going around, but they don't have an explanation. They don't have Jesus. They don't have God telling them what's going on. And so in their endless chatter and their plans, they're like, well, we got to move on with our lives. we got to go home and do this, but I'm so upset about it. I don't know where he is. There, Jesus is there next to them. And guess what he's doing? Just being silent. They're so busy talking that Jesus is silenced for a while. He's silent because he can't get a word in edgewise. They're too busy walking fast and talking fast and trying to figure it all out. And so the first thing I'm going to say, I'm going to say a few. This is a journey. If we want to begin to see God, we have to practice something like silence. And that's just a stand-in. I do mean literal silence. But you could throw in other words, and it's like, pause, pay attention, be present, be aware, get off the road of your chatter and your busyness, and see, be curious about what might come onto the road that you're on, what this thing might have to say, what it might add to my understanding, instead of just giving all the answers, I'm wanting to listen See, we don't often see God because we have our mental blinders on. We're looking for what we expect. And that's really what blindness means. For them, they expected a great prophet that would turn into this religious political savior. Get rid of the Romans and put them back in power and freedom to worship and to live as they wanted and to bless the nations. G.K. Chesterton said once that when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing They believe in anything. And he'd been a lot of things that, but I think for our purposes, what he means is that we all believe in something and we stay in those loops and we don't question them and we don't get down to our presuppositions. We just, we just know what we know we know because this happened to me and because I believe that and I don't like those kind of people and I just know it, you know. No one seems to seek God as he is. This might be one of the ways we would understand original sin. No one is looking for the God who is what he is as he offers himself. Instead, we're making these gods of our own making in our minds, asking them to perform for us, to deliver for us, to become the saviors that we want according to our preconceived notions. And this can be political, material, personal. They become blinders. They become tunnel vision. And so we get disappointed in our gods when they don't deliver or in the true God when he doesn't deliver according to what we expected him to do. And what happens when we get disappointed? 
Often, we get right back on the road again as fast as possible, even if it's walking straight away from where he said to be. I'm fine. I just got to get back to business. I'm going home again. I got stuff to do. Come with me. Let's go. And talking and talking and moving. This busy, anxious busyness, right? This is why, you know, it's obvious. I'm going to skip through part of this stuff I wrote because you know that when time is stressful, you can't stop checking the news all the time, even though it exhausts you. You can't still for five, sit still for five minutes of boredom without checking your phone. You can't stop trying to build your life until you finally feel like you've melt, made a safe house for yourself and it's secure and nothing can take your security away from you. I love this quote, and this is the only long quote I'm going to read this morning. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this gentleman's name, to be honest with you. I think it's Pico Iyer, Iyer, I-Y-E-R. He was a former New Yorker. He might still be a New Yorker. He's a writer, and he participated in this film, a really lovely film called In Pursuit of Silence. And let me just read to you what he said after this experience. I was staying at a monastery. Before I experienced silence firsthand for days on end, I thought that it was about austerity and privation. And as soon as I was there, I found that it was really about coming to your senses. Waking up in every sense of that word. Learning to look, to listen, to taste, to hear, to stare unflinchingly at the way things really are. I thought it was a movement away from real life and a form of escaping real life. And then when I experienced it, I realized that it was about embracing real life. Again, in every sense of that word, embrace, which is throwing your arms around it, living closely with it, finding even more to appreciate in it, in an inner way. That's where you really notice how retreating from the cacophony of the world is stepping towards everything that's essential in you and in the world around you. In that sense, it's a pilgrimage. And of course, many traditions talk about the world of Caesar and the world of God. And by definition, to step away from the world of Caesar is to step towards the world of God, however you define it whatever terms you want to make, but certainly it's a step towards reality. When I was 33 and writing for Time Magazine and I'd been living in New York City, I thought real life meant the cacophony of Times Square. And as soon as I stepped in silence, I realized this is much more real because it's much more changeless. It's more close to the heart of me and it's about everything important. That Times Square actually is taking us away from real life. I would just add here, it's not merely a technological problem, although we have made our technologies much more addictive and inescapable. It's a human heart problem. It's a, it's a posture that we have, this, this tendency to just stay busy and run and to find the next distraction rather than to sit with what is, especially, especially when we're disappointed and we think we're on our own and God doesn't seem to be there. The good news is that Jesus shows up precisely in the place where they are running away from him. He had said, wait in Jerusalem till you're clothed on power from on high by the Holy Spirit. I will raise again in three days. He told them clearly. They're running away and he shows up right in their busy chatter on the road. He shows up, he waits in silence, and then he tries to elicit them out through questioning. Huh, you guys seem worked up. Tell me what's on your mind. What's on your heart? Get it off. I want to know what's going on. See, he's left the 99 sheep in Jerusalem to go find the two that are in danger, and he does this for us too. 
Because he loves us and he doesn't want us to live in the half-life or sometimes the hellscape that is our own mental cages, our own repeating over and over again, but we had hoped, oh, we had hoped, we had hoped. They had hoped he was the one to save Israel. And when we leave his loving presence, we often find ourselves close to despair or certainly in discouragement in our frenetic activity and the lack of life giving us what we thought it would. And even there, he chases us down. He enters into conversation with us. He asks us in his compassion to tell, what are you worried about? What's going on in your life, in your relationship, in your mind, in your job, in your apartment, in your street, in your city, in your world? What are you so upset about? Tell me about it. I want to hear. He asks questions. Once he starts talking, and again, they're questions first, now they start to slow down and look. There's something much more reciprocal going on, right? Silence, presence, awareness. Huh, wait, what? And they're talking, and now they're having this dialogue with Jesus. He asks them questions. He gets them to open up. It's before they tell him, it says, they stood really still. They've stopped. And their heads go down. They're looking really sad. And they say, well, we had hoped. Here's the truth. I think he does that with us too. When you finally sit still and you slow down, you have any kind of silence or a t- the first thing he says, well, well, what's wrong? You know, why aren't you here all the time? Why are you walking away? What are you all worked up about? So I would start there. Where are you most sad? Depressed. Disappointed with God. Thinking of walking away from him or from your idea of the good if you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps that place will become the door by which Jesus enters in and begins to show you more about himself and who he really is because it's right in this place of them being vulnerable and telling the truth about their disappointment that he does challenge them, but he begins the process or continues the process of revealing himself to them, of them everything. You'll see. We'll just keep walking through it here. This is where he shows up. He puts his finger right on the wound. They share it with him. And this is where the healing begins. See, he hadn't fed their mental box or their expectations for life. And they're debating. And they're in despair. But when we finally stop, we listen to his questions. We tell him the truth. Then he, when he has an audience, Think how humble that is for the almighty, omnipotent God who made all things and you is infinitely paying attention to you all of the time and he waits. And when you're ready, he speaks. What he does here is begin to re-narrate their experience. Again, they're immediately, they've got their narrative. They've got their story. They know what this means. Well, this means this for me. It made something else for those guys back in the city, but this and that. And it's what it maybe means for our nation and for our religion. And I don't know. And they, they've got all this stuff going on. But he comes and he says, oh, man. And the word is actually dull of mind and dull hearted. It's like you've just worn it out. It's dull. It's got no sharpness left. It can't do anything. You're stuck in your loops. Foolish ones. Dull of mind. Slow of heart, dull of heart. Slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
wasn't it necessary that God's Messiah, who was going to save Israel and through Israel all the nations of the world and make all things new, wasn't it necessary, as soon as you start knowing the story, that his Christ had to suffer these exact things that you witnessed this week before he entered into glory? Well, let's just pause here and say, obviously it wasn't obvious to them (laughs) that this was necessary. It wasn't obvious to any of them. They were very familiar with the scriptures, and this is why some of the most religious people can be the hardest people to be around and sometimes the most disappointed and angry because they've only read it one way. They're reading it for their preconceived notions. They're, this is what my, ta- my pastor and his granddaddy's pastor and all the pastors before said about this, and this is just what we've told. And they're looking for their preconceived notions rather than letting God speak through the scriptures to interrogate us, to reframe our narratives, sometimes to turn them over, sometimes to contradict them. He teaches them from the beginning with Moses, which means Genesis, that's the Torah, Moses and on. And then all of the prophets, the shorthand of saying the entire, what we call the Old Testament. He walked through it, it as a long walk, and he explained that the whole thing is about him, Jesus. All of it was pointing forward to him from the promised seed, from the new Adam, from Adam himself, to the promised seed that would come and crush the head of the snake. He just explains it to them that God is doing so much more than they ever could have asked or imagined. So this is the second step. When I said silence is a step towards being able to see God when he's around, the second is what I'm calling search the scriptures, but what I really mean is not to stand over it, you know, like with a microscope and scientifically chop it up and make it fit your prearranged notions, but no, to do as they did here, to allow God himself, in our case, through the power of the Holy Spirit and they're in community, to be taught new things from the scriptures. You're here for church, and you may be here for lots of different reasons this morning, but I want to encourage you that God has a fresh word for his people by the power of his spirit in every day and every time through his powerful word that he has inspired and spoke through men and women throughout millennia since the beginning. They've been written down, the encounter of God meeting with people and revealing himself to them. And we write these things down and we have them before us. And it's there so that he can continue to do new things for you, not just old things, not just old wineskins, but to speak to you to expand your mind. I mean, to be, yeah, to be silly, to blow your mind. Like, whoa, what? That's, I never would have expected that. When we make space to hear Jesus, he will begin to re-narrate our mental maps of life. He will tell God's true story of the world, the one that actually has significance and meaning, which let's face it, I can think about all the stuff that I got messed up in loops about this week. Uh, what's the first one that comes to mind? This isn't written down. I got really mad at some dude on one of those crazy electric scooters. He had his whole like uh, Blade Runner thing on, his giant helmet, and he just blazed through something, almost ran me over, and I might have said something you know, not so nice to him. And then I was mad. I'm like, how does pastors yell things like that to people on the side of the sidewalk? And I just spent the whole day like feeling like a jerk and also being mad at him in the city. Well, maybe I needed Jesus to come and just tell me, you know what? <laughs> like, there's so much more to pay attention to here than that little thing, Right? See the things that I'm doing. See the people that have loved you this week. See the people that have encouraged you. See the flowers. Yes, see all of these things that I am doing to forgive you, to renew you, to be with you. I was there with you when you made that mistake. I forgive you. Let's move ahead. You know, that God is there using the scriptures, if you will let him, 
to give them new understandings, that he was going to do more than they imagined. What they expected was that they would, he would do something temporally for them and for their kind and for their people at that time that they expected for a long time, which was to be back in power and free from Rome. What he was telling them is, what you don't know is that I'm doing something so much greater than that. I'm not just going to conquer Rome. I'm conquering sin and death and every problem that's ever existed in the world because of sin and death. I had to go all the way to the root, under the ground, and die. I am redeeming you from the thing that actually terrifies you, the thing you're actually anxious about, which is that your life is finite, and it will come to conclusion, and you're afraid of what happens on the other side. I came to take care of that and more. And this, they started, man, this says their hearts were burning within them later. This sounds like good news. It's it's wild, and so it's getting dark, and they say, you know, come in with us. Let's keep talking. Let's sit down and eat together. Like, you don't want to go on in the dark. And so he comes in. He sits down with them, and I think this is my third point. Invite him in. When he starts talking and he's showing new things to the Scriptures, instead of being afraid or moving on distractedly, say, man, this is good. Come in. Come into my house. Come with me on my journey. I want you to keep talking. I want to keep asking you questions. I'm open. And you can invite him in with you where you are all week. Literally. He will come in with you. Even when you don't recognize him yet, and they don't. He is present with you. Before you know it is him, he is there. He's always in your apartment. He's with you on the sidewalk. He's with you while you sleep. He's closer to you than your own thoughts, than the sound of your breath. He is your life. It says that he remains with them, he eats with them, and he revealed himself finally. And this is interesting. It would have been customary, I'm pretty sure, for the owner of the house to break the bread. At some point, they offered or he asked. Maybe they're, this is interesting. This is starting to feel somewhat familiar. Jesus becomes the host in their house, and he breaks bread. And that's what you're doing here when you come home to him in church and then he goes back to you in your home. It's when he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. God will reveal himself to you again and again more deeply, but so often in similar ways as he always has. Just like I didn't notice those flowers until this year, to be honest with you, didn't really pay attention to them, just backdrop to my agenda. Now I'm pulling up my app and I just want to know what their story is and how they got their name and what they do and I want to learn all about them. Just so in that pattern that I'd taken for granted, Jesus will show up and it's primarily through things like the Eucharist and the table and the church in the divine liturgy, in community, in fellowship, in faith, in prayer, in service. He will reveal himself to you even more deeply, but often in ways that you have taken for granted. He loves to reveal himself, especially in certain ways, to be known intimately. And in this case, we see from this story we learn, he especially loves to reveal himself through broken things. That we can see him 
in broken things. See, for those first disciples, their eyes were not opened until he came in, sat down with them at their table. He took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. And this is how we come to see Jesus too, in the breaking of bread. And this happens in many ways. As I said, it happens during communion at church as we break the bread and rehearse the pattern where he is. It can happen when you go home and you invite him in and you're sitting together with roommates or friends or families or strangers even to feast and to celebrate together when you break bread with one another in your homes. And it can happen in things we see all around us every day, especially in broken things. It's true that you can build your life on that, that Jesus isn't just in your sound structure that you've made safe and secure, but Jesus is in broken things. You can see him in broken things, in the breaking of bread and in the breaking of our hearts. We had hoped. God's love is found in broken bodies and broken spirits. His presence and power is for broken people and through broken people. If we will simply... When we find ourselves on the road, running away, busy, instead turn towards silence and stillness, reorient ourselves, search the scriptures with Jesus and in community together as they did, and invite him in where we are broken and where we are breaking bread, then we will begin to see him time after time. And the more practice you get at it, the easier or at least the quicker it will become. It is always a gift, always a grace. But it's a grace that he often and always longs to give and is waiting to give. You'll be able to recognize him and more and more you will begin to see God regularly. You begin to see the flowers. Yes, you'll see one another in a new way. You'll actually pay attention to the glory that is sitting next to you in the pew. You'll see the story of God as he understands what's happening in your life and in the world through the scriptures more fully as it's part of his redemption. And you begin to see the whole world in a new way. When they're done, they say, our hearts were burning. And in the middle of the night, they jump up and they run back to Jerusalem. They go back to the church. They meet with people. And they say, you won't believe it. It's amazing. He revealed himself to us. We have seen him. And then they would go on and tell the whole world about this new living God. And there are great tears of joy and embracing and all things being made new. Hearts warmed by this mind-renewing true story, eyes opened in the breaking of bread, and feet moved out in joyful mission. This is the pattern. This is the pilgrimage. This is what's on offer to you again this morning. So may God give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus with us, even this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Thank you.